and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics five days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. If you want to know what the next general election campaign could be like, have a look at Chris Luxon's TikTok account. He's now the Prime Minister of New Zealand after his national party beat Labour in 2023. And he hired an ad firm called Topham Guerin to help him do it. Suddenly, Chris Luxon was doing TikTok stunts, playing budget games and coming across as intensely relatable. Top and Guerin are now working with the Conservatives, so with a general election coming soon, how are the parties hoping to get into your social media feeds? With me today is Kate Domit, who's Professor of Digital Politics at Sheffield University. Welcome to The Bunker, Kate. Hello. So the Brexit referendum was all about Facebook, but that was more than six years ago. Are parties still using Facebook? Yeah, so Facebook is still being used, but there have been some quite important changes that I think are going to affect where we're seeing political content at the next election. So last time around, especially in 2019, last general election, we saw all political parties placing adverts on Facebook. Um, we saw a lot of organic content placed there. And it was largely the main platform that parties invested in. But since 2019, there's been a lot of change. There's been efforts to regulate what's going on with targeting online. There's more friction around Facebook. So you have to now register to place political ads, for example. And there's a lot more regulation and a lot more restriction of what it's possible to do on that platform. There's also been kind of big changes in the demographics. So Facebook is now largely used by older voters and political parties that are trying to reach out to younger voters and different audiences basically aren't finding the people they need to speak to on Facebook. So they're starting to reach out and to use other channels. So where is the digital advertising money starting to go now? So we'll still see a lot spent on Facebook just because it's very popular. But, you know, there's also the other meta products. So Instagram, we're likely to see a lot spent on Google products and on YouTube. But we're also likely to see this kind of organic content, which isn't necessarily paid for on platforms like TikTok and on other kind of social media platforms that are less prominent for most listeners. And the big advantage of Facebook is that you were able to target advertising quite precisely to the demographics that you wanted to reach. And that, of course, was something that the Leave campaign used quite effectively in 2016. Does the same apply to the other channels they're using, maybe even more so? So Facebook's still the main place and meta products where you can do that kind of targeting. Um, you also can on Google. It kind of depends what we're talking about. So a lot of the content on TikTok is organic. And what we mean by that is it's not paid for. It's just a post that a politician makes. And they don't necessarily use the same targeting criteria when they're doing that. We tend to see targeting criteria used when it's paid content. So it really varies platform to platform. And are they using places other than social media to get their message across? Things like apps, for example. Yeah, so we're starting to see more use of mobile. So this is something that was used a lot in the US. So in the US, it's possible to do something called peer-to-peer -peer texting, where you can essentially pay to send out text messages to lists of supporters. Now, that isn't possible in the UK because of the regulation that's here. But what you can do is create content on mobile, and then encourage people to share that through their own networks. So there's a new feature on WhatsApp that allows central parties to create content and basically send that out to lists of people who are signed up who might be campaigners on the ground. And we therefore expect them to be kind of forwarding on and sharing within their own local networks content that's designed to promote a particular party. 
So Facebook isn't the only place that has been cracking down on political advertising because of all the criticism around it, of course. Google recently brought in a new rule that forces political ads to disclose the use of AI for YouTube. Is this going to trouble parties, do you think? Yeah, so I've been having a look at this. It's interesting. And I think the the usual response when we come to kind of problems of digital campaigning is to kind of give people more information. Um, so we've seen a lot of efforts to increase transparency around targeting, about who's paying for adverts. And this is the kind of latest iteration of that tradition. So I think it's good in some ways. You know, it will ensure that good actors can provide a way of um, indicating when they're using AI, which is a good thing for voters to know. But we don't yet have the kind of systems to detect AI as accurately as it can be created. So the system will largely work by people making complaints about AI content and then it being taken down. And I think that's really important because one of the big problems that we saw at the last election was a campaigner would do something problematic it would get picked up in the mainstream media and really amplified. And there's potential that this will happen again. So we might see AI used on YouTube. That usage gets really amplified, even if YouTube then forced that content to be taken down. So it's not going to solve the problem, but it's a step in the right direction. So essentially, it's going to be very hard because, as you say, it's a complaint system. If there's something out there that's for example, that alleged recording of Keir Starmer shouting at one of his staff recently, which was circulated and which, of course, turned out to be fake. If there's something out there like that, it could be halfway around the world before it gets corrected. And when it does get taken down and corrected, it's hard, isn't it, to know how you can actually tell people and get across to them that this was false. Yeah, and it's really tricky. I think it's the big challenge around digital campaigning is it's so fast that it's quite hard to kind of pull things back and correct the record. I think one of the things that interests me is a lot of the efforts to kind of regulate and stop problematic practices focused on the, you know, the output and what actually happens. And I think we often don't really think about the people who are creating and deciding to use these tools and what could be done to try and shape their behavior and incentivize them to not engage in these problematic practices. So we've seen in the Netherlands, for example, a code of conduct around digital campaigning where political parties and campaigners have signed up to say that they're not going to do things like very micro-targeted campaigns. And something like that could work in terms of getting political parties to say that they won't use AI in campaign materials. That's all very well for parties who have an incentive to protect their reputation. It doesn't really work for those campaign groups that can just pop up run a few problematic pieces of content and then disappear into the ether. So it's much harder to regulate that side of things. So you can't run paid-for political ads on TikTok, but that doesn't mean you can't use it in an election campaign, as Chris Luxon, who we were talking about earlier, found out. He got 17 million views, and that may not sound a huge amount, but there are only 5.3 million people in the whole of New Zealand. And most of them were from under 35s, whom political advertisers often find really, really hard to reach. How do you think he managed to cut through? What was his secret sauce, if you like? Yeah, it's interesting when you watch these videos because they're all quite playful. They're very human. And I think one of the real success stories of it is it's about connection and it's about taking politics, which, you know, for most people is something they don't really think about and is quite stale and dry 
and trying to depict a politician in a different light and to make them a bit more relatable. And I think that's why you see this kind of form of content being quite successful is it, it challenges your expectations and it's a little bit funny uh, trying to kind of see politicians, you know, paint themselves as ordinary people. The main thing is it's kind of, it's comment worthy, it's share worthy. Either you agree with it and so you want to share it or you kind of think the politician is looking slightly ridiculous. So, you know, you want to amplify it because you want to have a laugh at their expense. But it, it's quite an effective way of getting this interaction with voters for a whole range of different reasons. It was quite self-deprecating, wasn't it? Yeah. He knew that he was doing something out of character, to, <laughs> to be honest. Do you think we could expect to see Rishi Sunak doing something similar here? Would that work? I think it's really interesting. So no politician in the UK, Matt Hancock excepting, who has has been dabbling, has really kind of successfully pulled off TikTok yet. But I think we are going to see them trying because of that huge audience and because of the amount of engagement that they can get on the platform. So I imagine we probably will see some quite cringeworthy uh, TikToks appearing through the election campaign. What do you think of the party's efforts so far? Because they're sort of dabbling a bit in this kind of thing and in different ways of using social media and video especially. How would you rate, say, Labour's efforts so far? It's really interesting. I think Labour are definitely trying to be a bit more edgy this time round. So a lot of their content is definitely a bit more teasing or a bit more kind of confrontational. At the moment, they're, they're just kind of doing a lot of imagery. So using graphs to show the difference between what's happening in key metrics around the economy or child poverty um, under Labour and under the Tories. So a lot of shareable content, I think. But it does feel like they're being a bit more spiky than they were last time round. And that's interesting because I think the Conservatives were using that strategy in 2019. So they were trying to be a bit provocative and to get coverage and get a reaction from people. The Conservatives ran basically what felt like an attack ad recently, didn't they, when they used that footage of the BBC presenter who was sticking her finger up. And it turned out that she wasn't sticking her finger up really at all. It was just um, a, a joke she was having with production team. But they took that and said, and put a slogan on it like, you know, Labour, when you ask them what they're going to do about illegal migration. And it, from what I read, that didn't actually go down very well with Tory voters. And it certainly didn't seem to go down well with Tory MPs. But I guess you could call that edgy and confrontational, couldn't you? Yeah, and I think this is why social media can be quite divisive. So there will be some people who saw that, who thought it was really, really funny, who screenshotted it and kind of sent it on because they reinforced their views. But for a lot of other people, and I think a lot of MPs, you know, that's not how politics should be done. It should be a kind of more noble engagement, which is more about ideas. And I think there is this real tension at the moment in a lot of campaigns as to how much do they create content and memes and shareable social media posts that have a big reach and how much do they focus on policy and leaders attributes. And, you know, these are two very different strategies, but it seems like more political parties are kind of going for that provocative approach this time around. Is there an example of a really good piece of social media, organic social media content that's gone viral that you can think of? Yeah, so I'll give you a few. So some of them can be quite simple. So the Scottish National Party, for example, put a lot of effort into creating these little gifts. So they had one of Nicola Sturgeon just raising her eyebrow uh, that was really widely shared as a kind of reaction that you could just get through the gift shortcut on your phone. So there's that kind of content. Um 
there was an app that was created by the Green Party called Reasons to Vote Green. And you could basically log into this app and kind of pick out of a range of different options, things that for you were motivating your vote. And then you could share that on social media. Um, or there was one other one that from the last election. Uh, so the Labour Party made this game called Corbyn Run. Uh, that was a kind of little interactive game of Corbyn kind of dodging um, key threats and having to, to move through different landscapes. Uh, and that was shared quite a lot as a kind of interactive way of being able to signal that you were interested in Labour, but also, you know, it's just a bit of fun. People often sort of characterise social media as not really a place where you can have serious political debate. But let's face it, in a lot of elections, there hasn't been a great deal of serious political debate in the advertising campaigns. I remember, you know, Tony Blair and his demon eyes that the Conservatives put out. That wasn't exactly subtle or respectful. And you know, going back to the earliest days of even political advertising in the 1950s in America, you had the most simplistic slogans and things like, I like Ike for Eisenhower. Um, I, I wonder if you think that the whole kind of, oh, social media, we shouldn't go near that. It's a bit... It, is overrated. <laughs> I think the stories we tell ourselves about election campaigns are fascinating. I think we have this idea that, you know, each citizen goes out and gathers all of this information about all of the policies of political parties and makes a very educated and informed decision. And, you know, we just know from decades of political science, that's not what goes on. Most people don't pay attention to elections until one or two weeks out from election day. And then they largely kind of just rely on gut instinct or they vote for the party that they voted for for decades. So I think it's important to kind of reality check as to what is going on. And if you do that, it makes sense why political parties adopt the approach they do, because most people don't pay attention. And so you have to have something very short, very snappy, that clearly and concisely conveys the message that you're trying to get across. And I think we're already kind of seeing that with Labour. It's a real change message. You know, just votes get the Tories out. They're already starting to, to kind of push that type of narrative across. It's not quite clear what the Conservatives is going to be, but, you know, the kind of get Brexit done was the mantra of the last election round. And I think we'll be seeing similar, very short, very snappy, highly repetitive slogans come across in social media, but also news interviews, also telly. Uh, they'll permeate across a whole range of different media. Yeah, I was asked last week if Keir Starmer was going to run a vibes-based election campaign. And it was a bit of a strange question in a way because I think most election campaigns fundamentally are vibes-based, even if they aspire to be about something much more elevated. Um, so it does raise the spectrum, you know, since parties only have a finite amount to spend and there's only a limited number of places in which they can spend them digitally, is there going to be a whole industry of influencers who are basically shilling for political parties? So that's interesting. So there's two things going on. I think it's worth saying that this time around, political parties are going to have more money than ever before. So the Conservatives have just raised the spending limits and it's a huge increase in the amount of money they can spend. So I do think we'll see money play a role as never before. But your point about influence, I think, is fascinating. So influences is this kind of 
we think about it in the commercial context. So, you know, the big influences like the Kardashians or, you know, celebrities who are promoting products in the commercial space. Now, that's really migrated into politics, particularly in the US, where there's now firms who sell access to political influences, who are people often in kind of key marginal constituencies who have an audience that is attractive to a political party. And in the US, you can kind of go and buy the services of these influencers and they will put out your campaign messaging. Now, it's something we've seen taken up in other parties and other countries in recent elections. And I think we're going to see it play a role in the UK. The difference is that the exchange of money in this context is more regulated than it is in the US. So what we might see is what's happened to a small extent in previous elections is like party leaders reaching out to celebrities and getting them to do interviews or just giving them access. So they're not paying for their time, but they're exchanging access to a politician for access to that social media influences audience. So I think we are going to see that and see campaigns try and reach out to different audiences that are owned by these influencers. Does the Electoral Commission, which basically polices election funding and party political funding, does it have anything to say about that yet? So it's it's one of those funny things that in general, social media and the digital realm isn't really very regulated. So a lot of the rules for offline campaigning don't apply online. So when it comes to influencers, there's two places that they could fall under regulation. So the first is around money. So any spending above £200 has to be declared to the Electoral Commission. So if a political party does pay an influencer, it will come up in the spending returns after the election. So we'll be able to see that. And as long as that's all transparent, that's fine. The other way they might come into regulation is last month, the Electoral Commission introduced digital imprints. So this is a very, very small disclaimer, which on any digital material that is promoting a political candidate or party has to say promoted by and then the person's name. So it might be that if an influencer is explicitly trying to influence their audience to vote for a political party, that they have to have this imprint saying what they're doing, essentially. I think that's interesting. So we're doing some research at the moment about what the impact of these imprints are. And the kind of existing findings so far show that people don't notice them. And that if they do notice them, they don't really have much of an impact on people's perceptions of what they're seeing. So those are the two forms of regulation. And I'll leave it to you to decide whether you think those are effective or not. Right. I'll leave it to the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of political content do people like to share? Is it different from the kind of content that they might share that was, you know, straightforward advertising content, for example. What kinds of emotions really cut through to people in the context of a political campaign that make them feel this is urgent? There can be two different types of motivations, I suppose. So one of them is that almost that kind of tribal demonstrative, you know, you want to show that you're part of a particular movement. So we've seen political campaigns, for example, making badges to display on your Facebook account or like little kind of giffy clips that you can use on social media or on your messaging apps that kind of help you display that you're part of a particular movement. So I think we'll kind of see some people doing that because they want to demonstrate their politics. But a lot of it 
also tends to be a kind of outrage response. So you see a bit of content and, you know, it, it really riles your emotions and maybe plays into some fears that you've got or some concerns. And that can also prompt an emotional response that leads people to share it because they either get, you know, a sense of outrage or, or disgust and that, you know, they want to take action as a response to that. And I wanted to ask you about the old kind of political advertising. Obviously, there's posters, but particularly about party election broadcasts, which maybe younger listeners to the podcast may not even be aware of because they are so hard to come across now. They were a phenomenon of live TV. And so they would come on, you know, just before the nine o'clock news, for example, or the six o'clock news during a party election campaign. And each party had a regulated number of broadcasts that they could do. Now that people are not watching these, basically, for obvious reasons, is there a case for putting ads on people's social media feeds or even, you know, as you were saying earlier about what's done in the US, pushing text messages to people's phones through peer-to-peer messaging? Should we all be, you know, forced to receive this stuff for the sake of democracy? (laughs) (laughs) I think this is a really interesting question and it kind of shows what a big divide there is between our understanding of what is good and proper in traditional campaigning mode and our understanding of of what should be happening online. So at the moment, you're quite right. It's impossible to put an advert on telly in the UK unless you have these party broadcasts because there's regulation that said, you know, there should be equal access for all political parties to be able to communicate with people. And so we're going to stop you basically paying for more exposure. Now, compare that to online, and there is no regulation whatsoever of what it's possible to do online. So essentially, if you've got the money as a political party, you can spend millions, and we've seen them spend millions, on online political advertising. And that means that parties like the Conservatives and Labour have the ability to reach out and contact voters in a way that smaller parties, like the Green Party or the Scottish National Party, they just don't have the money to be able to do that. So we're seeing a real divide between what it's possible to do online and offline. So I think we do need to kind of go back to those first principles and go, well, what's going on here? and How do we ensure things are fair? And for me, that principle about, you know, people should have equal access and you shouldn't be able to buy a bigger audience just because you're a larger party or you've got a few large donors. I think that is a really important principle. So what I'd quite like to see is us, you know, really try and bring the online space into regulation a little bit more and go, right, let's work out what we think political campaigners should be entitled to, and then make sure that that's equal, whether it's on telly or it's on social media. Kate, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget that you can back us on Patreon for the fairly small sum of £3 a month or more if you want. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio editing by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.